podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. This is The Rocket Report. I'm Frank Morano. Welcome to the podcast that is dedicated to exploring the world of organized crime and all of the ripples that have emerged in American society as a result of organized crime. Not just La Cosa Nostra, but every type of organized crime there is. And when you're talking about the effect that organized crime has had on anything, pretty soon, pretty soon you have to have a conversation about Las Vegas. I am thrilled to have a man that is not only an expert in all things Vegas, but especially an expert on classic Las Vegas. He also happens to be an expert on the business side of magic and an author whose works include The Dunes Hotel and Casino, The Mob, The Connections, The Stories. And uh, he is somebody that has been a professor, he's been a writer, he's worked in the casino business, he has done all things related to Las Vegas for over over a half a century. Very pleased to welcome to the Racket Report, Gino Minari. Gino, it's great to talk to you. Uh, Frank, thanks for asking me to come on. Gino, um, give folks a little bit of an idea of your background. I know you moved to Las Vegas back in 1964. Where'd you move there from? Uh, Burbank, California. Uh, and my family, basically, we were, my grandmother and um, all my uncles were immigrants from Italy, and they moved to Montana and uh, uh, Butte and, and uh, Roundup and Billings, Montana. And my cousin, uh, Frank Skivo, uh, was a protege of Milton Prell, who had a gambling operation in Montana. And they came to Las Vegas in the early, well, late 49, 50, and they built Club Bingo, and then they built the Sahara Hotel. And I came to Las Vegas in 64, go to work at the Sahara Hotel as a busboy. <laughs> It made me start at the bottom. <laughs> well, no, so you're not, you didn't get to benefit from any nepotism, I guess. No, not in my family, no. Uh, well, that, that uh, bodes well. I imagine the Las Vegas you moved to in 1964 is very different from the Las Vegas of 2023, right? Oh, what a difference. Uh, for, by people, first of all. You know, I think maybe there might have been a little over 100,000 when I moved here, maybe a little less. Now there's 3 million. Wow. That's a big change. And people were different. Everybody knew everybody. And in fact, uh, uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you got drunk and drove a car, which is not a good thing to do, but the cops would drive you home. They wouldn't arrest you even in those days. It was just a whole different way. Everybody knew everybody. And uh, you always went to somebody for a referral if you needed something done, like, you know, where can I get a good mechanic? And you'd go to a friend and... There was no such thing as the internet and so forth. But it was just a different town. So it sounds like if you're answering the question of how Las Vegas has changed mm -hmm. over the years, it went from being a small town where everyone knew each other and the population was actually pretty small to being more of a city, a typical city. Yeah, and uh, you know now having sports, a couple of sports teams, qualifies it for special special 
uh, investment groups who want to come to Vegas. So it's made the town a bigger thing. But when I was here, you know, most of the places, I would say a good portion of them, not most of them, were, were operated by people who were in illegal gambling back east, Chicago, Buffalo, you all over the country. And they came here because it was legal. And they had a place. They went to Reno as well. And so it was, uh, it was, it was operated by guys who knew the business. They didn't learn it in school. They learned it by, you know, hard knocks and actually operating speakeasies and, and backroom casinos and so forth. I want to talk to you about your book in uh, just a minute because I'm absolutely fascinated by it. But you've done a lot of things in the casino business, in writing, in a lot of different facets of Vegas life. What sparked your interest in writing about classic Las Vegas and kind of being a chronicler of Vegas history. Why? I mean, you've been a professor, you've been a writer, you've worked in casinos. Why did you say, all right, I've got to get this down on the printed page? What sparked your interest initially? Well, for a lot of reasons. You know, the Gaming Control Board and the Gaming Commission, they have files on every person who works in gaming and all the licensees. You know, if you're trying to get something from them, there's state laws that prevent you from doing so. So So if you wanted to ask them who worked at the at the Sahara Hotel in 1952-53, they, they wouldn't tell you. It's against the law. Or, or why did that person not get denied a business uh, gaming license? So I, I, and, I, and I was around all these owners at the Dunes Hotel as a young kid. I first met one of the owners of the Dunes Hotel when I was like 18 years old. And it was at the airport, uh, at McCarran Field. I, was, I wanted to learn to fly, and I, I took all my money that I had and and I could, I could get a flying lesson for $10 an hour in those days. Wow. And so at, at the airport, owners had airplanes. And they'd tell stories about various other guys, you know, about uh, guys that worked in the casino business, Gus Greenbaum, uh, and many, many other ones. And, and I was fascinated by the stories. I was fascinated by gambling. It just it was unbelievable, uh, you know. And uh, I think that's what really... I wanted to preserve it. I wanted to, you know, because it's passed down to me and uh, I, I, I leave this world. Who's going to know about these stories at the dunes? And that was one of the main reasons why I wrote it. I wanted the true story of the dunes. know. Tell me, before we get into your book specifically, uh, about, and I know this predates your time in Las Vegas a bit, but the amount of spoke people that you've spoken with and your connections in the Las Vegas area, I know that you can answer this question with your eyes closed. What was the mob's role in the formation of Las Vegas, or if not its formation, at least bringing Las Vegas to the kind of gambling mecca that we know it to be today? Well, there was various operations, various mob mob operations. You know, there's the, there's the mafia, and there's the Chicago outfit, and there's the syndicate. You know, and so they they all had different ways of of operating gaming, and they did it in cities where they had the they knew what the best way to treat a customer was, and so when they came out here, they knew that they needed rooms, they needed good food, they needed the belly touch. You know, where where a boss would come up to somebody and shake hands with them you know, and meet them and extend a courtesy to them. You know, they, they were, they were just different. They weren't, I hate to use the word, the same word, pencil pushers. They weren't, you know, they looked at things the, a different way. They knew if they gave away good food, and they had good food, good entertainment, you know, nice, clean place, friendly atmosphere, people would come back. And that was the driving force, whether it be a local casino that, that just attracted locals 
or a, a tourist resort on the Las Vegas Strip. You know, it, they, they just knew how to operate. You know, they didn't have computers in their hands. They didn't walk around with smartphones. These guys ran this thing with their wits. You know, they, they just knew how to operate. They knew what was good. And they didn't, you know, they didn't say, oh, we can't afford to do that. They did it. They had the finest food. They had the best chefs. I mean, you know, I had one boss one time. He told me, I want you to stick your, your, your finger right in that sauce and taste it every single day. If it doesn't <laughs> taste good, get, throw it out. <laughs> you know, so th- th- that was the secret. I think it was good food, good bargains, you know, and classy stuff. And, uh, and you know, and they, they, they gave people uh, like an adult Disneyland in a way. That's really what they did. And people loved it. And just kept coming back. The Rat Pack, all those guys, the people loved to be around it. They just wanted to be in the casino where those guys were hanging out. And uh, good entertainment. The Sahara Hotel had some of the finest. You know, Marlena Dietrich, even Donald O'Connor, you know, uh, Victor, uh, Victor Borgia uh, and, you know, and, and bigger stars. I just can't have them at the top of my head. But no, I mean, wonderful, wonderful shows. The, those is, uh, are big as names as you could imagine uh, seeing in, in person. So what was the Dunes Hotel? Why focus on that? If people know Las Vegas from a visit that they've made in the 21st century, the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, they may not be up on the history of the Dunes. What was the Dunes? Well, first of all, the Dunes now, where the location is, is the Bellagio. That's where the location was. Why I picked the Dunes? Because I worked there two times. That's why I picked the Dunes. And I was 22 years old when I went to work in the, in the 21 pit. And uh, I think it was 1968, I think it was, early 68. And uh, I, it was just fascinating. I never saw anything like this in my life. I never saw so much money in my life, uh, cash. And uh, so when I'm working in the 21 pit at the Dunes, you know, I hear stories and all the bosses you work with, you know, they, they tell you stories and, you know, you, you hear all this stuff. It's just fascinating. It's just like unbelievable stuff you want to know more about. and You want to be like them. You know, you want to you want to emulate them. You know, you all the dealers had pinky rings, you know, like the bosses did. And, you know, they bought fancy watches. They had custom shirts made, you know, and, you know, custom slacks. It was a classy operation, you know, and, 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 and you wanted to be like them, basically. And uh, the dunes, after about six months, I was, I was practicing Baccarat in my, in my garage. We built a little homemade table, uh, you know, a piece of plywood, and we had a layout. And, I, you know, I practiced there with paper money, you know, and some, you know, we didn't use chips. We, Baccarat was dealt with real cash in those days. And so one day I was watching the bosses in the pit before I was going to go on my table, and they were in a pretty good mood. And then when they were in a good mood, you, you, could, you could talk to them, you know. If they were in a bad mood, you stayed away. And so I, I had the nerve to walk up to the guy that, that hired me. And I says, Mr. Duckworth, and he was a fine guy. I says, you know, I'm learning Baccarat in my garage. And I was just wondering if I could go over there in my own time. I don't want any money. I just want to maybe practice maybe an hour or two. He turned to me and he said, get yourself two tuxedos. You start tomorrow night. And he walked away from me. I couldn't even tell him I don't even know the game. That's how I got. In, that's how I got in the baccarat pit. So when I went in the baccarat pit, you know, I'm I'm the youngest guy, and all these guys. This was the choice place to work in the Dunes Hotel, back in any hotel. You know, uh, all these guys are wondering how did this kid get in here. You know, I was a little, I was like kind of like real, you know, a little shy on this. And uh, there was a certain boss there from New York, 
name was Vince Taglia Lalatella. And uh, he worked in Harlem. He worked for games that Fat Tony Salerno operated. And he was a paper dealer, uh, meaning cash dealer. And he, and he even had a, a Ziganet game. That was an Italian game. Sure. Similar, you know what that is, similar sure. to, you know, that is. And uh, he dealt paper and all that stuff. One day, you know, he he he, he kind of like always stood up for the, uh, the 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 underdog, and so one day, you know, he those guys were always ribbing me and razzing me, you know, and giving me a hard time basically, and you know, and I'm I'm trying to learn everything I could, and as I coming off that, one day I was on the stick. That's where you call the game in Baccarat, and I walk around the table right by the boss's high chair, and he said, "Come here a second. Can you make? I got a memo here. Can you? Can you? Can you make? I can't see that word. One word here, and I looked at the word, and it was, and it was pretty clear, you know. And it, and I, and I kind of, I realized maybe he doesn't have a good command of the English language. And I helped him, you know. I very quietly helped him, and from that day, he took me under his wing, and uh, you know, taught me everything. And uh, it was, he was a bookmaker. He was a Shylock, and he, he I mean, he was something. He used to, I used to go to his house for dinner with his wife, you know, they'd cook dinner for Italian food and uh, people would drop money in envelopes through his mailbox while we were eating. And then he'd do his books and he'd, he'd write down little things on little pieces of paper. He'd fold them up and put them up in his pocket, up in his upper top of his trouser pocket. And then he'd pull the, 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 the pocket out and you couldn't see the stuff. And he says, <laughs> you always do that in case you get arrested. You know, I mean, <laughs> guy was a beauty, you know, and he was a Shylock, you know, he was 5% to, to small time guys you know, bartenders and, uh, you know, dealers and, you know, two, two, three percent for bigger money. And so that's how I got to know him. I mean, uh, it was just an unbelievable. So the, I'm going to ask you a question, which you say on your website, which people should check out. It's Gino Minari.com, G-E-N-O-M-U-N-A-R-I. You say on your website, it's too difficult a question to answer with a yes or a no. So I'm going to uh, invite you to give a more expansive answer to this question. Was the Dunes mob controlled? Uh, I would say the Dunes was mob influenced and they had partners. Yes, it was. Absolutely. Uh, what happened and, to the, and they sorry, had various? They had various mobs in there. Okay, and uh, there, there's an FBI. There's an FBI memo um, where they have electronic surveillance on Giancana and a guy by the name of Potsy uh, talking about Sid Wyman, who was one of my bosses. And uh, so I'm not spilling any beans here. He, he was great to me, and he was he was a, he was a big boss there. And uh, he had the majority interest in the Dunes Hotel. Him, his partner, Charlie QP Rich, and Charlie's stepson, George Duckworth. They controlled the Dunes. And uh, so um, Wyman's talk, talking to Potsy. The FBI's got this memo. And uh, he's saying, uh, you know, is there, Potsy's saying to Wyman, is there any way we can make some money if I invest some money with you? And he says, I always uh, hold back about 1500 a shift for that sort of thing. You know, so, so, and these guys were Chicago and then Potsy's talking to Giancani says, you think I should do that? And, uh, I, I believe that there was a several guys from Chicago involved in the dunes as well as a couple of other people from Detroit and, uh, around the country, New York as well. I know you mentioned that the Bellagio is where the dunes is now. When did the yeah. dunes tenure as a casino hotel end? When did it uh, cease operations? 
Oh, I, I can't give you the exact date. Ballpark, I could know that. Ballpark. But, yeah, it was like 1993, I think it was. Yeah. And, and what happened? Why did the Dunes um, empire well, come to an end? Well, it went through it went through all kinds of of issues. You know, first of all, you, you had uh, you had uh, the Dunes guys in the, in the late well, early 70s. Um, the Dunes owners, several of them, got indicted for skimming, and uh, so they had to work on this trial. Now, these these were people who had gaming licenses, so they they did some shuffling around and they. Stole some stock to Michelin Rickless, uh, who owned the Riviera, but he never took it over the deal. But they had to do something because here you have one of the vice presidents and the main owner indicted, and they got a trial coming up. Well, they beat the trial. Hmm. Harry Claiborne was their judge, was their lawyer, the judge Harry Claiborne, who was impeached. He was a local defense attorney, the smartest guy in the world. And the co-attorney was Morris Shanker, who was from St. Louis, who was their attorney when they were in St. Louis or stuff. He was also an attorney for, for Jimmy Hoffa, which I used to see Hoffa come in the dunes several times, by the way, that was a work in there. In any, in any event, the dunes, uh, these guys, they beat the case, but Wyman was getting older. He got sick. Uh, and, uh, Shanker and another guy, uh, they purchased the dunes hotel, the majority of it. And uh, I believe, you know, uh, things didn't change much. It was still, he's basically a front um, for several outfits. And uh, and they just took all the money out of the dunes as much as they could, and they never put anything back into it. But he wasn't a good operator. Shanker wasn't a guy that knew gamblers. You know, he he, he would he would go down into the, if the game, say a crap game was really running hot. He'd go on there and tell the, the shift manager, take those dice off the table. Players would get mad. You know, you know, he, he was a, and he was a greedy guy. He had his, he had his son working there, his wife working there, and he was funneling as much money as he could out of there to put into a place in uh, uh, Murrieta Hot Springs. He built a resort down there that didn't make any money whatsoever, but he did wind up with a lot of property in San Diego, and uh, you know, it got tougher and tougher for him to pay a little bit the bills. And they, you know, I'm sure that there was plenty of skimming going on, and. Uh, by him. And, uh, that was that. And, uh, he sold it to a couple of other people. Um, they eventually had the same troubles. There was too much debt on the property because the property was owned by one company and the hotel was owned by another company. And, uh, they just couldn't handle it anymore. And finally it went to bankruptcy court and Kikorian was going to buy it. Kurt Kikorian, the financier that built the MGM grand and uh, TIA airlines and he owned Western Airlines at one time, fabulous guy. And uh, at the last minute, he pulled out, and Steve Wynn bought it. And, and uh, the rest is history, I guess. The rest is history. But a funny story is that the guy by the name of Jerry Zerowitz, who was, who was the big, big boss at Caesars Palace when they opened, the boss, period, he told Jay Sarno and Jacobson what to do. He was the ultimate boss. He had... Seventy-five thousand dollars, seventy-five thousand shares of Golden Nugget, uh, and uh, the Gaming Commission encouraged him to sell that that stock to a certain individual so he could acquire the, the control of the Golden Nugget. So uh, it was a it's such an interesting combination of people. Pretty hard to unravel. Un, un, unravel. 
But uh, hope oh. I didn't get off track. Here. No, I, I mean I, I'm fascinated by this. I, I, the fact that you got a ringside seat for all this is just incredible. Oh, um, so the book that we uh, that we've been talking about, the Dunes Hotel and Casino, the mob, the connections, the stories. There are a number of inf- incidents described in this book that you experienced firsthand, right? And you tell the stories in yes. the first person. Yes. And now, how about the others? Wh- who who were the sources for the other stories that you didn't get to well, witness firsthand? You know, I had, uh, I think I have over 390 footnotes. I wouldn't write something unless I could put it down. There's a couple of people I have to, re- I have to keep anonymous for family reasons, their family. But, uh, you know, and, and some of the one or two of those, one guy is still alive. And, uh, you know, when he told me something, I know for a fact it was a fact. Are you specifically referring to, can you tell me a story, which one you are interested in? No, just in general. I mean, with 350 footnotes, I'm just curious about the kind of folks that, uh, that, that are, that were your sources for the book. Yeah. I had guys, I had one guy that worked for Kerkorian. And he was the Kokorian's right-hand man. And the second guy that worked for Kokorian, who was in charge of all the casino, guys, and they worked with Mo Dalewitz in Kentucky. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, which is an interesting story. Uh, and, uh, you, know, you know, I don't know if you knew, you know, we didn't get on this much, but, you know, Howard Hughes wanted to buy the dune. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was buying properties, you know. Well, you know, he sold the Frontier Hotel, or he bought the Frontier Hotel, and uh, uh, Mo Dalewitz, uh, um also uh, sold the Desert Inn, and uh, and Johnny Roselli, which was another book I published for a guy, mm-hmm. the All American Mafioso. You know, he shut down Mo Dalewitz at the uh, at the Brown Derby restaurant in Los Angeles, Hollywood, and uh, he felt that because of the sale of the Desert Inn. He didn't get a big enough piece of what he should have got for for basically a finder's fee. He really shook him down, and Dalis didn't like him. And so uh, a lot of people think, uh, you know, that might have been the reason maybe uh, he was off. But uh, there's a lot of other other reasons for that. Um, uh, but my, all my sources were real, were absolutely real sources. And this one source, who was one of the, I can't tell you his name. I wish I could. Uh, he was just was the greatest guy I've ever known in my life. What a, I used to have dinner with him and the other fella at least once a week. And, you know, I didn't want to get too nosy, but he knew I loved the stuff. And he gave me a picture. And I won't publish it because I don't want to incriminate my friend. But there's two other guys in there. And he says, this is the real godfather of Vegas. And that was Jimmy Blue Eyes. Jimmy Blue Eyes Allo, A-L-O, who was Lansky's, one of his best friends. Wow. And a couple of other guys. And he says, he's the guy that really was the, the real godfather of Vegas. And, um, and so, so, you know, these stories were just precious to me. And these, in, the, in, these, in these talks I had with people, I'd ask them every question I could possibly ask them. So I hope I'm not going off course here for you. But, you know, Roselli, you know, uh, was around the dunes and he knew Wyman. But uh, a lot of guys think that... Uh, you know, because of of Roselli being hired by uh, Bob Mayhew, who came to the, the uh, El Rancho, and the first person he meets is is Johnny Roselli, and then up comes Belden Cattleman, who's introduced to 
Mayu by Johnny Roselli. In, in the meantime, Mayu's got a subpoena in his hand for Belden Cattlemen. That's the reason he had to come, but he wouldn't s- s- serve it because of the out of courtesy that Johnny Roselli didn't want to embarrass anybody. But there may have been another motive for killing Johnny Roselli. A lot of people think it was the is because of the JFK thing. Or well, well, because- yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to that. So, um, okay. l- l- just let's backtrack a little bit since you since you brought sure. up Johnny Roselli. Give folks an understanding of who exactly Johnny Roselli was in uh, underworld circles and in Las Vegas circles. Yeah, he, well, in underworld circles, he was the Chicago guy. He was he was uh, uh, number one guy in Las Vegas for them, and he also was out in Hollywood with a couple of guys. You know. Uh, putting the shake down in the movie studios. Uh, his wife was an actress, June Lang, and locally he was the, he was the guy. You know, he was the guy here uh, to get that got things done. He had an interest in the Tropicana Hotel and uh, and some other little businesses with a few other people. But uh, the sheriff Ralph Lamb, uh, he, he he wised off the sheriff Ralph Lamb, and Ralph Lamb knocked the hell out of him, took him down to a metro jail, and loused him with. Uh, chemicals and threw him in jail and, and, uh, to teach him a lesson. Uh, and he, he was a guy that was, you know, that he, Roselli hired Giancana to kill Castro. And, uh, uh, locally there's an, there's, you know, they say, well, that's why he was murdered, but Roselli was a bad guy. There was a guy by the name of Chinky Rothman from Philadelphia he had a son by the name of Al Rothman. And a lot of people think this may have been the motive. Now, remember, this is a little gory. I, like, so if you have it's children, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you have children, just kind of guard them away from this. But when they found Roselli, you know, they cut off a piece of his body and stuck it in his mouth. Wow. Okay. Now, you don't do that to, on, a, on a regular mob hit unless you're, unless you're, you're, you're talking too much or you're, or you're really out of line with a woman. And so... It's Al Rothman had a wife who was a cocktail waitress at the Desert Inn. She ran away with with Johnny Roselli, and a lot of people think that that was the that was the issue, uh, and a lot of people don't. But it's it's something that has to be brought into the picture. But an FBI report uh, back in '78 believes that uh, the two guys that killed him were Chicago guys, Frankie Schweif and uh, Vincent Joseph Incero. So, you know, I kind of believe that story over the Rothman killing, but it's very, very possible that it could have, he could have killed him, too. So Johnny, and, um, Johnny, Riz, Johnny Roselli's name, uh, as you alluded to, pops up a lot in discussion of various theories about the Kennedy assassination. To the best of true. your understanding, what did Johnny Roselli have to do with the Kennedy assassination? Well, uh, I don't believe Johnny Roselli had anything to do with it, uh, in, in my opinion. That's just my my theory. Um, he was a friend of Judith Exner, who was most, one of the most beautiful brunettes you've ever seen in your life. That Kennedy really liked, and I, I just don't believe. And he, I mean, she was like his 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 messenger girl to, to the president. I just don't believe Roselli was involved in killing the killing Kennedy. Um, however, uh, in the All American Mafioso book, it was written by a guy by the name of Ed Becker who was at one time an entertainment publicity guy at the Riviera Hotel when Wyman was working there and the mob was involved. And he, he always wanted to act like, and he was involved in the Grim, Grim Reaper book with Ed Reed, and he was also the, the architect 
of the Greenfeld Jungle. I knew Ed, Ed Becker. We used to hang out at this place called Cafe Michelle on Flamingo Road. Everybody after work would go there to eat lunch they'd have or dinner. Wonderful food they had, Greek, Greek owner. It was just wonderful. And Becker used to go there and hold court in the afternoon. And me and a couple of friends of mine would stop over there. And one afternoon I was sitting close to Becker and the guy in between us was Tony Montana. Tony Montana's uncle was John Montana, mm. who was the mob boss in Buffalo, who was at the Appalachian meeting. And, uh, but Tony was in Chicago and, uh, you know, he was a friend of Ed's and he, he was, he did stuff for the outfit and he operated a couple of bars and stuff, but he worked for a few of the outfit guys, including Spilatro. And Tony was a really a decent, really nice guy. And I'm listening to these stories, and that's how I met Tony. And uh, Ed Becker was a braggadocio guy and always want to pat himself on the back. And, um, you know, when I worked at the Dunes, I sensed when you talk to somebody or listen to somebody for 10 minutes, you can tell how much is really real and how much isn't. So I, I kind of had a little uh, kind of like a uh, an offish feeling about him. I, he just didn't feel right. But Tony and I became great friends. And so Tony helped Ed Becker put together the All-American Mafioso book. Extremely well he helped him. And after Ed Becker died, Tony brought this up to me. He said, why don't you republish this? So I did for him, and I republished it, and it's still being sold on Amazon. And there's also a Kindle version. And uh, so I, I interviewed Tony Montana many, many times. It's one afternoon we're talking about where Ed Becker, well, first of all, Tony uh, arranged the interview with Carlos Marcello in New Orleans. And uh, that, I was also going to ask you about it. So explain to folks who Carlos Marcello is. Carlos Marcello was a New Orleans mob boss, a Sicilian real mafia guy. He, he controlled New Orleans completely. He had, he had beautiful gambling joints and, and out, slot machines all over the city. They had a beautiful place that you know, actually had tables and entertainment. And then he also had a hidden interest in the Tropicana Hotel. And I believe a couple of other, but I don't know exactly which ones they were. So Ed Becker wants to go to see Marcello and interview him. Because he claims, okay, he claimed in his book, by the way, that he was in Marcello's home on his farm in 1962. And he sat there and listened to Ed Becker. Uh, excuse me. He sat there and listened to Marcello talk about how he's going to kill President Kennedy mm. in 1962. That's in the book. And then, so I'm, I'm interviewing Tony about this one afternoon. Got all done with the interview. And then we turned it all off, you know, turned the recorder off. And I said, hey, Tony, this is really interesting. I, I don't know. I just never just thought of this. But you told me, well, in the book, it says that Ed Becker was in Marcello's office in 1962. And he's sitting there with another guy. And he heard the story about uh, biting the hair, tail of the dog and all that, and he's going to kill the president. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, so how come then you had to bring him down there through more through Joe, Joe Pignatella, call him Joe the Pig, uh, it was a Chicago outfit guy who ran the Villa DS, Sinatra's favorite chef. And Joe, Joe the Pig knew Marcello's brother very well. And you asked him, as you told me, favor to introduce uh, Ed Becker and, and interview Marcello. And you got that on. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. He said, we flew down there. We stayed in one hotel and 
and we called the, the brother, and he says, a guy's going to pick you up tomorrow morning, and we're going to take you out to the plantation or the farm, and you're going to talk to Marcelo. And I said to Tony, Tony, when you walked in there, how did, how did Marcelo greet you? Wouldn't he have recognized Ed Becker from 1962? He says, you're right. He didn't even know him. He said, what's this all about? He didn't say, hello, Ed, or I remember you. Or Ed said, you remember me? I was here in 62. That didn't happen. I mean, I, I, I interviewed Tony four times on this. I wanted to make sure that he was accurate. So I says, well, that means that he wasn't there in 62. That might have just been hearsay that he heard about. He says, you're right. You know, I sent that information to G. Robert Blakely, and he says, it's good to hear that a uh, little, little late, better late than never. Uh, who was the assassinations attorney, you know, the House Assassinations Committee attorney. And so it, I believe Ed Becker completely fabricated it. And he used it to his own reasons to sell books and make himself wow. somewhat famous. So I believe that. That story I actually believe. I, I've spoken with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who obviously has been very outspoken on not only his father's assassination, but his uncle's assassination. And one of the things that he points to was that there were a number of areas of collaboration between the mafia and uh, various government agencies, either the CIA or the FBI, meant to carry on uh, different different things, be it the assassination of Castro or other high uh, uh, you know, other things going on during World War II. And um, he points to that as an indication that he thinks there was likely some elements within the CIA that dealt with some elements of the mafia regarding the assassination. Do you believe that? I I, I do. I, 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 I believe uh, that I believe that Marcelo could have had the capable, he was capable enough to do it. He had the means to do it. And a few other guys had the means to do it. Um, there's no question in my mind today, I do believe it was a conspiracy. Look at this last guy, Landis, who was a Secret Service agent, just came out after all these 60 years. Right. That he's, he, even, he even thinks it's a conspiracy. conspiracy yeah. And I think it was. And I think they used various people who were rogue members of the CIA. I do not believe the CIA killed Kennedy. I believe a rogue... Department of the CIA did a group of people, almost like executive action with the, that was made that movie. But I, you know, I, I believe that, and uh, there's so much evidence and incongruities that have shown up that prove that prove this. You know, I always thought before this Landis came out uh, with the bullet thing, I thought that that uh, Jack Ruby dropped the bullet on the stretcher because he ran into a Texas newspaper reporter there at the hospital. And I'm thinking, what was he doing there? You know, why was Jack Ruby at the hospital? Right. You know, so but I, that Landis came out and, and answered the story. But I do believe they were together. Look, look what's just happened. And, and I'm not knocking the FBI, the good, solid guys that are on the field that work hard. You know, they, they have to do what they're told to do. And I believe that you, you can, you, 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 you're welcome. You're, you, you know this from the recent hearings we've had with, uh, the chief of the FBI, Ray, look at the problems. They don't reveal and tell you everything that happens. Look at the things with Martin Luther King, what happened. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff is very strange. And I do believe that. And look at Lansky, Lansky and Luciano. I mean, uh, Lansky basically 
brokered the deal to get Lucky Luciano uh, out of jail. So I do believe they've always used them, even since the OSS, because those, you know, the, the, the mafia guys knew how to get things done. They're guerrilla. You know, they could get things done and no one knew who they were. So, um, yeah, I kind of believe that. Now, the, the, even in the, the police station in Dallas, when they were questioning uh, Oswald, um, a remark was made, and, and Ruby, Jack Ruby, corrected it. You know, what is he jumping in there for? You know, he, he corrected a, a, a mistake that somebody had made, you know, in a, in a question. So there's so many things that are incongruities. Rose Sharami, the, the, the somewhat prostitute that was thrown out on the road three days before the JFK assassination on the way back from Louisiana to Dallas. And she told the doctor that she, she the president was going to get killed at 1230 in Dallas. I mean, there's all these, and then there's these, these operators in Oxnard, California, who received a telephone call that Bobby Kennedy investigated this, by the way, uh, that they said the president's going to die tomorrow afternoon at 1230 or something like that. So it's just too much. And those guys had the means to do it. And uh, what did Oswald do? A lot of people think he was an agent of the, of the CIA, CIA that was working to, to catch these guys. And it all backfired on them. I, I don't know. It's a really complicated story. But I do believe uh, a couple of rogue members of the CIA and a few uh, mercenaries, Sturgis, maybe a few other guys plotted to kill. And I think Roselli might have known about some of that, but I don't think Roselli had a hand in it. But I do believe the mafia was involved because in my book, I don't know if you read this portion of it. I, uh, there's a guy that worked at the desert Inn, and, um, he was, uh, a dealer. He, first of all, he was in the, he was a sniper in the Marines. And uh, he got out of the army in the early, early, late, late 50 or 49 or something like that. He was from Alabama, and he went to work as a dealer in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And uh, in those days, when you wanted a dealer, they didn't have dealing schools in Las Vegas. You had to call somebody back east that had a gambling operation. And, Can you get me a, a 21 dealer? Can you get me a crap dealer or a wheel dealer? That's a roulette wheel. He's, so this... Mo Dalitz needed a, needed a good dealer on the wheel. So Mo Dalitz called uh, a guy in Hot Springs that he knew, and he recommended this guy. And the guy came out to Vegas, and he went to the cage, got an apron and a tie, and Mo Dalitz didn't meet him until he could find out if he could deal well enough. Otherwise, there's no reason to even talk to him. And after a couple of weeks, he realized the guy could deal. And so... Um, this guy went to work there, and he was a good dealer, and he was promoted along the way. And Mo Dalitz, uh, you know, jokingly said to him, hey, one day let's go out in the desert and see if you can shoot that rifle like you told me you could. And so going out to the desert in those in 1952 or three was just like stepping one block out the back door. It was all desert. And they would go shoot uh, cans and quarters, and this guy was an expert shot. He says, oh, maybe I could use you sometime, kind of jokingly, right? He promoted this fellow into uh, a special duty assistant to him, did all of his errands, protected his family, um, and, and anything that Mo Dalitz wanted, he did. Well, this one day in 1963, 
uh, Mo Dalitz is, uh, is uh, having a meeting upstairs, and uh, this gentleman, Mr. X, uh, basically uh, went on an errand for Mo Dalitz, and uh, he went, uh, got the information he needed, and he came back to the Desert Inn, and he was told that they were all, he was upstairs in the country club on the second floor in a meeting. Uh, so he went there and they, he said there was two guys sitting at the bottom of the stairs and they didn't recognize him. And they, and he said, I'm here to see a Mo. And they said, just a second. They went and got Dalitz. He came back and he says, come on, let him up. And, uh, he, he went up to the country club and, and I, I, and Mo brought him in and, uh, into a room and he said, before he went into the room, he said, I want you to meet some guys. And, uh, and sitting at this table, when he opened the, the meeting, and this is what this gentleman says. And I interviewed this gentleman four times, one time in front of Mo Dalitz's daughter, and he never blinked and never changed a story. He said at the table with Dalitz was Nick Savella from Kansas city, AMG and Connor, Lyndon Johnson. Wow. And I, I, I couldn't believe this. I couldn't believe the story. So I, I went out and did some research, and I found out through the Presidential Library of Lyndon Johnson, he was in Las Vegas at the Desert Inn Hotel and stayed, I think, in room 345. They went to the Tropicana show, which was owned by Mar- Marcello, and he went to the Stardust show, which was owned by... Dale was in the Cleveland outfit and a few other guys. And, um, uh, that was that. And, uh, later on, um, and, and I asked him, what year was this? Um, and, and, and I believe it was early 63 or in 63, according to the, the statement of the room. So anyway, um, uh, I mean, Johnson's, I mean, Lyndon B. Johnson, now Lyndon B. Johnson, quite an interesting background. He was very uh, uh, different, you might say, uh, accused of having people killed before. But the point is, Dalek then contacted my friend, uh, and he said, uh, um, hey, uh, listen, how do you feel about uh, doing some work? And he knew exactly what he meant. And he says, well, I, I don't uh, kill women, and I don't shoot politicians and laughed it off and left it as it be. Now, who knows what they were talking about? It could have been about killing Castro, uh, or it could have been anything who knows what it was. And, and no one, by the way, Roselli was not at that meeting, by the way. So it's very, very interesting to me. And this is, this is no uh, evidence you can just throw under the rug and not bring up if it didn't happen to me. And how I found out about this, I happened to be at a little restaurant. I was writing my book in, in a notebook. I was writing a chapter, and, and he just happened to come out there. And he said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm, I'm writing a book about the Dunes, and I got a chapter on the Kennedy thing." And he said, "The Kennedy thing?" He says, "We should talk together." And so we made a meeting, and we talked, and I recorded him, and I did it two times, and I, I believe this really happened. So that's that's my story about that. Wow, my goodness! So, I, I mean, this guy—I've known this guy for forty years. He he was an executive at the Desert Inn Hotel. I know his wife uh, as well. 
uh, and uh, all credible people. They're the most stand-up people you ever want to meet in your life. In fact, uh, I mean, I could even arrange an interview if he would allow it with you. I mean, I'd like you to talk. That'd be great. I'd love to. I'd love to. That, that could great. happen. So I'm going I'm to look into that. That would, I would but love I, to do I didn't that. want to put his name in here. I didn't no, I appreciate that. that. I, I appreciate that. I would love to do that. Um, but we're almost out of time, but there are a couple of quick areas I have to ask you about before we, uh, before we wrap up here, Gino. One has to do with uh, Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa has been, I don't even think you could say rumored. I think it's widely accepted that Jimmy... Hoffa had extensive dealings with uh, with organized crime. What is your understanding of Jimmy Hoffa's relationship with the mafia? And what did you get to see firsthand regarding Jimmy Hoffa and the Dunes or Las Vegas in general? Well, uh, he was very close to a couple guys at the Dunes, um, and but there's no question uh, Hoffa was represented by Morris Shanker for a short time, you know, and and. Uh, and he was a personal friend of Major Riddle at the Dunes, Sid Wyman at the Dunes, and Charlie Rich at the Dunes. And he visited the Dunes sometimes secretly. You know, and uh, at one time he wanted the he wanted uh, a couple of the Dunes guys to buy an insurance company so he could give them all the insurance business. But there's no question, Hoffa approached uh, was a pro, was a, approached a guy by the name of Ed Parton who was the guy that put Hoffa in jail in Tennessee in that famous case. And Hoffa wanted to kill uh, Robert Kennedy. And there's no question about that. Hoffa, uh, Parton took a lie detector test and he, and, and all, you know, all the details and all the, uh, the necessary uh, uh, investigative questions were asked of him. And it's true. And I believe Hoffa, you know, maybe supplied some money, maybe supplied some help. But he did. He did proposition this guy to kill Robert Kennedy. Wow. Uh, also, there's no question. Uh, the reason he was killed, in my opinion, because he was he wanted to become president again, and he was he was going to of the teamsters gonna, of the teamsters. Yeah, and he was going to he was going to rat on all the rest of them and all the all the all the other guys. He was going to rat on them, and uh, that, that's why they killed him. They believe he was going to talk to keep himself out of jail and to win the election, and. Um, you know, he hated Fitzsimmons, who was his hand-picked guy to take over for him. And uh, another reason why maybe Dorfman was killed, uh, who was hand-picked by Hoffa. Oh, all that money, there was too much money to play with. That's what it was. One of, the things, one of the things you delve into a bit in your book is a mysterious bomb assassination plot. Who was that an assassination plot oh, towards? Oh, my God. That's, that's a really uh, – a guy. The, the, the plot was done by uh, – was going to be performed on a guy by the name of Ash Resnick, who was one of the owners of Caesar's Palace, who was an associate of Fat Tony Salerno. And, uh, you know, he, he couldn't keep his hands out of the till, though. Okay. And he was a bookmaker, and he was an ex-pro basketball player. And he did something to somebody. I know it had something to do with the Tropicana Hotel. They were all vying for power out there when Savella was behind the wheel, secretly. Uh, the, the Tropicana was, you know, up for grabs. A couple of the guys that I knew, I knew one guy, his name was Pacey, who was a bookmaker, and a friend of uh, the guys at the Dunes, who actually deposited $100,000 into the cage for himself, for safekeeping, so they could have a bankroll to operate the casino. They were short of cash. And so 
there's no question either uh, Ash Resnick did something to somebody. So they, FBI got wind of it somehow, and they caught the guy trying to put the bomb in the car. And uh, so they made a deal. They got the got rid of the guy, and they they got another guy, and uh, uh, they go through the action, and then they arrested the guy that was behind it all. This guy was a guy by the name of Chucky Burns. Chucky Burns was from St. Louis, involved with all the criminals in St. Louis, and uh, he was arrested and put under house arrest, and he. He skipped town and never came back to Las Vegas. Eventually died in St. Louis. But he was he was like, I used to see him every single day. Wow. One of my immediate bosses was Dave Goldberg, another good friend of Savella, um, and uh, Johnny Vitale, uh, all, book, all bookmakers from St. Louis. That's it. They were all at the dunes. And that was, that was his cousin. So every day I'd see Chuck come by and say hello to Dave. In fact, I helped Chucky with a bunch of things, and he was the one that was going to put a bomb in uh, Ash Resnick's car. Unbelievable story. The uh, state of Las Vegas today, I don't really hear much in terms of mob influence on Las Vegas today. It seems like it's, uh, for the most part, very corporate. Is that your your understanding as well? Yeah, it is, and it's really simple. Uh, When they made the Corporate Gaming Act, I think Richard Bryan, Governor Richard Bryan, was a great governor, by the way, and he was a guy you could walk up and talk to. I even helped him meet everybody at the dunes when he ran for assembly. Uh, they passed a law that said, uh, you know, uh, corporations can own casinos. And so the mob had it all figured out. You can own up to 4.99% of corporate stock and not have to get a gaming license. So if a bunch of guys got together and bought 4.99% and then a couple of other guys bought that, the mob could run the casino really, uh, you know, run it in the background because they own the stock and they'd have enough power to appoint the board of directors and uh, appoint the positions in the casino. So that's what basically happened. And then, of course, you know, Howard Hughes, of course, uh, bought a lot of places to get rid of some of the mob. And so, uh, you know, there's relatives in the mob that are still around. And uh, they have kids that have gone into legitimate businesses. Good for them. And, uh, I'm sure uh, there's a couple of big names. I don't want to mention the names of the company, but I would be very suspicious. At one time, I was very suspicious of Bally's. And I think that was an example of, of um, a lot of uh, hidden ownership. So. If someone is visiting Las Vegas today and they're looking for a great old school restaurant, right? A, a restaurant that you might find in the Vegas of yesteryear, where would you send them? Oh, there's a couple of places, really. You know, the Golden Steer is still there. It's right off of Sahara and, and the Strip. Love the Caesar uh, salad there. Love that Caesar salad. Yeah, oh, you know the place. Okay. Oh, yeah. uh, Bob's, Bob, uh, uh, this, this old steakhouse out of, out of the old ranch, the ranch, the old ranch house. Bob, Bob Anderson's old ranch house. It's way out in North Las Vegas area. Uh, you've got the, the Pepper Mill still open. They have a good little, a good restaurant, good general restaurant. Um, there's a few other little ones, you know. There's a couple of uh, uh, Oscar Goodman uh, ran is operating in his front, basically, is under his name. Oscars at the 
downtown right. Union Plaza. Uh, right. Uh, Oscar's uh, Beef, Booze, and Broads, I think, is the full yeah. name. And, and, and Oscar's a friend of mine. I love Oscar. Oh, yeah. He was my lawyer a couple of times. Yeah, he was a good guy. And so, uh, top of the, the top of the, uh, of the of the horseshoe, there used to be the mint. Then the, then the horseshoe bought the mint. They punched a hole through the thing. They didn't have to get another license because they wouldn't have got one. And they have the beautiful steakhouse overlooking the city. That's a great place. Um, there's a, there's a lot of little pla- little little local places that are just wonderful. You know, it's wonderful. What's you speaking of Oscar? By the way, he takes a lot of pride in being the father of the Mob Museum. I'm sure you visited it, and if you have, what's your review of the Mob Museum? I think it's excellent. Everybody should go and take a look at that. Uh, and and they don't even have all the stories there. There's still stories that nobody even knows about. There's some casinos, for instance. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna spill the beans here a little bit. But the Sahara Hotel, where my cousin was, okay, when they owned it, him and Milton Prell and a bunch of partners. They eventually sold to Del Webb. Well, they never got in trouble for skimming because they did so much social, local uh, charity. They never even questioned. And I know for a fact <laughs> that they skimmed. There's no question about it. But the Flamingo got all the heat. Uh, Lansky was involved in it. A few other guys were involved in it. Uh, but uh, they, they, it's, still, it's still, you know, if it happens today, it's done by single operators, you know, like a little team of inside people, not for the mob, but just for stealing. And it does happen. And they have, and they've got tremendous security to watch it. The, um, you've got to fill me in on this uh, new betting system that you seem to have developed for, uh, for football. Oh. I, I got hammered in my football pool uh, recently. What, uh, give, can you give us the reader's digest version to what the I, Munari I method is? Well, it, it's called I Beat the Bookie. And uh, ever since I worked at the Dunes Hotel, you know, I would run across the street to the Churchill Down Sport, Sports Book to get the scores. God forbid if I made a mistake. At those, at those times, they had guys that were touts that were selling information, you know, 50, 100 bucks, 200 a game. So I, I got to thinking about it. You know what? I want to make a machine that'll sell you a pick based on artificial intelligence in a neural brain network. And we built a couple of machines, but now we built an application that anyone is going to be released soon. Not quite ready, almost ready. We've got the desktop version, but we don't have the iPad and the iPhone version quite done. It's almost done. It's almost there. And uh, you basically can, you buy a subscription uh, for one day for 10 bucks for a month, 49 bucks for a year, 499 bucks. You have unlimited, unlimited searches and, and ideas. You can look at the line, you can look at the favorites, you can look at every sport. You can, and then we give you our picks and they're based on probability to win. Okay. All the numbers are put in and the higher the probability, the more chances you are to win. You can bet the money line. That means just the highest score where you lay or take odds, lay or take money, or you get the points, you lay points or take points, or you can bet the over and under. We've done this for every sport there wow. is. So if people want and to check it out, how, how do they check it out? Well, very soon, I'm going to have an announcement. We're going to give everyone no credit card, no hassle, 14-day free trial, oh. period. Uh, uh, 14 gotta, days. Well, I'm definitely going to check that one out. You're going to, you'll get one. I'll, the, you'll get one for sure. I appreciate and that. I appreciate you letting me, uh, letting me talk about that. I uh, didn't want to do that. No, if I— If you I, want to see—the the website is 
IBeatTheBookie.com. This talks about it and shows you what it is. IBeatTheBookie.com. People should check it out. I they should also, the also check out uh, GinoMinari.com. And if you're interested in uh, Old Vegas, we are just scratching the surface of the stories that Gino covers in... It's available on Amazon. You could check it out. And uh, there are stories that are incredible, and they are all documented and absolutely true. Gino Minari, thank you so much. Thank you, Frank, for having me on. Appreciate that. It's my pleasure. If uh, someone sent you this podcast, do us a favor and please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Search The Racket Report, hit the subscribe button. You could also give us a nice review that'll help other people discover the podcast. Feel free to share it with someone else. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.